In the book, A Brief History of Time, there is a story which may or may not be true, perhaps it's apocryphal, about Bertrand Russell early in the 20th century doing a lecture on the solar system and talking about how the earth is orbiting the sun and all of the other uh, planets are orbiting the sun as well and how the, the earth, even though it feels like we're here on a flat plane, are actually uh, suspended in nothingness. And after he was done with his uh, lecture, a woman came up and she was obviously uh, determined to get a word in edgewise and put in her two cents. And she said to him with a totally straight face, you're wrong about us living on a ball rotating around the sun. We live on a crust of earth on the back of a giant turtle. Now, he knew enough as a philosopher to know that there are actually a number of different cultures that have taught this. In fact, in two different hemispheres, teaching it concurrently. And so rather than laugh at her, he said to her gently, If your theory is correct, madam, what does this turtle stand upon? And she said, I thought you might ask that. The first turtle stands on the back of a second, far larger turtle, of course, And so he said, well, what does this second turtle stand on? And the old lady said, it's no use, Dr. Russell. It's all turtles all the way down. (laughs) And of course, this story is related in order to kind of mock the idea that there must be a first cause, an unmoved mover, that Christians don't want to believe that it's all just hanging out in space, but that, that the bang was started, someone lit the match, that there is one who is the first cause that began the chain of events that brought about all that there is today. And yet, as Christians, we can together affirm that, yes, we're not standing on the back of a turtle, but rather a ball that's spinning in space, but that ultimately we're standing firmly not on the scientific principles that Bertrand Russell was teaching that day, because some of those have changed. But our ultimate standing firm is on the promises of God, which do not change. And while we are so thankful for scientific discovery, and that we can understand the beautiful creation that we have, and while we do highly value what we call general revelation, the study of all that is around us, Ultimately, we know that we are standing, as the hymn says, on the promises that will not fail. St. Paul emphasizes this here in the first and second chapters of 2 Corinthians. And yet, he has to deal with the fact that in the eyes of many in Corinth, he has failed them. And so what does that mean for the God whom he preached and the gospel that he brought to them? Well, he begins by actually, now that the letter is starting in earnest, defending his apostleship. And this will be a theme, because there are those whom he dubs super apostles who are taking pot shots at him in his absence, saying he's nothing, he's a flip-flopper, he's a joke, he's strong when he's far away, he's weak when he's face-to-face. And so Paul begins... And he is consistent, whether dealing with hostile Jews or with obstinate Gentiles or even those within the church who would say that he is not an apostle. He begins by boasting. How odd is that? Our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and especially so 
toward you. Paul is not of the, the customer is always right school of thought. If they are going to lie about him, he is going to set the record straight. There is, for some reason, in the church this notion, and I think it comes from just wanting to emulate Jesus, who did not answer when he was uh, charged with all sorts of crimes he did not commit, but like a sheep to the shearer, went silently to the idea that if you're a Christian, you cannot correct falsehoods about yourself. Now, Jesus did say, blessed are you when they lie about you and mock you and say all sorts of false things because of me, for great is your reward in, in, in heaven. But he did not say, you have to let everyone go on believing all those false things. Rather, Scripture tells us that we as Christians should be above reproach, which means that if we're reproached, we need to rise above it and make a defense. And he, he appeals then first to his own conscience as a witness. And we see through this passage, he goes up, up, up all the way to heaven itself. And so it begins by, by saying, my conscience is a witness for the way that we acted among you. Now, the conscience serves as a far better witness as a gu- than as a guide. You often hear, uh, let your conscience be your guide. And, and that can be a slippery thing to do because our conscience is often tainted or always tainted to some degree by our sin nature. And it will often say, oh, that's not so bad. Well, that's, yeah, we'll let that slide The Word of God is to be our guide, and the conscience is to be the tool that the Holy Spirit uses as a witness against us when we need to be rebuked and need to repent. So he says, listen, I can can tell you from my own conscience, it is clear that among you, I acted with simplicity and sincerity. And that Greek word sincerity literally translates, if you want to take it really woodenly, to judge by sunlight. You ever, you ever look at something in a dim room and it looks clean or it looks pretty good? And then you take it out into the harsh sunlight and you're like, yeah. Do you ever look at yourself, like your skin, and go, oh, I'm almost 40. I still look 14. And then you go out and you're like in the car, you're like, yeah, no. It's like a really bad 14-year-old. But sincerity has become so outdated today that I don't know that we even understand why he brings this up. Today, everything's got to be wrapped in nine layers of irony and sarcasm, and, and I'm guilty of this as anyone, but Paul says, listen, when I was among you, I said what I meant. What I said, what I wrote, what I did, they were all the same. That's what he means by simplicity. There wasn't all this duplicity, all these different agendas at play. Paul, when he defends himself, is completely transparent. Where he was wrong, he will admit it. And when he has been falsely accused, he will defend For we were not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us, just as we will boast for you. Now, this all goes back to the fact that that Paul had a plan, and it changed. He had originally, and there's, there's... several iterations of this, but he originally had planned an initial visit to Macedonia. Then from there, he was going to go to Corinth and visit the church he had started in Corinth. Then, because some troubles arose and he had addressed those troubles, he said, you know what? I am going on my way to Macedonia to stop and visit you. Then I'll go to Macedonia. Then on my way back, I'll stop and visit you again. 
But then, finally, he changed his mind back, and he said he would not make another painful visit to Corinth, so he went by way of Troas right to Macedonia, and all of the naysayers and the people who were working against Paul and Corinth said, do you see how he just changes? He's indecisive. He can't be counted on. Paul says, listen, my my goal was that I would benefit you. Now, he's already boasted, and now he's saying, I wanted to visit you twice, so you could have two benefits, a double benefit of me, right? There's a sense in which Paul is God's gift to the church because he exists there to serve the church and to proclaim to them the gospel. Literally, he says that you would receive a second grace. Like, I'm going to grace you with my presence again. And when we read this in context, read, read Romans 11 and we see what he means. He said to the Romans, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. When he goes somewhere, he goes there with the intention of bringing them a benefit, of bringing them grace, of strengthening them, of equipping them. And that was his original plan. But he did not carry it out. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? This was the the accusation that he had been vacillating, that he made plans lightly. That's actually what the the Greek word means at its core. Did I make it with lightness? That's what the King James says. The idea that he's kind of just floating there, and any wind can blow him in any different direction. He doesn't have anything really connecting him to the ground. No anchor. He promises more than he performs, they would say. As if he says, yes, yes, no, no, or in the King James, yay, yay, and nay, nay. I'm always amused when people spell yeah, Y-E-A, instead of Y-E-A-H. Because in my mind, it says yay, like yay, let us have tacos for dinner. And then it also means that if that says yeah, then when you read the Bible, it's like, yeah, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And Jesus says, let your yeah be yeah, and your nah be nah. And of course, nay, nay has a whole other thing going now. So let's just stick with yes, yes, and no, no. He is continuing what Jesus taught, what Jesus' brother, St. James, taught. Jesus says, but I say to you, do not take an oath, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair black or white. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from the evil one. And James says, But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or earth, or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. And there are sects within the church that have taken this to an extreme and said to swear an oath to become a citizen or to testify in court or for whatever reason is wrong and wicked and they refuse to do it. But we see in verse 23 that Paul takes an oath of sorts. He calls God to witness against him. That's the core of an oath. I'm calling God as a witness for me or against me to judge what has happened. So so Jesus and James, they're teaching, don't do these things lightly. You can get to the point where in order for someone to even believe you, you've got to add, like, I swear to God to what you're saying. Or I swear, it's true, honestly. And Jesus says, no, don't always be swearing by things, but let your yes be yes, your no be no, so that people will know what you say is what you mean. And Paul is telling them, this is what I have done in your midst. 
I have not vacillated. I have not made plans lightly. Verse 18, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. They preached Christ. Paul, Silas, Timothy. They preached Christ who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and not changing. Yeah, Paul's plans changed, but he says, make sure you recognize that Christ does not. And then comes one of the most wonderfully encouraging and beautiful phrases in Scripture that glorifies God and edifies us. When he says, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Or in the King James, all the promises of God are in him. Yes, and in him, amen. Yes and amen. We wouldn't even have that beautiful passage of Scripture if these people hadn't been lying about Paul and he hadn't decided to make a defense for himself. In order to refute these super apostles, he goes deeper than just saying, no, I intended to make the the case. I didn't do these things lightly. I did change my mind, but I had good reason. He goes deeper and says, listen, this thing that we have been preaching to you, it is unchangeable. It is fixed. It's not a variable. It's a constant. It's certain. And the source of it is the one true God who never changes, who never engages in doublespeak, yes and no, at the same time, but always makes the truth clear to us. This comes back to the nature of a promise. And, 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 you know, I don't know if you've ever found this and been surprised by it, and then realized there's no reason to be surprised by it, but I have, where you, you promise to do something, and you almost feel like that promise just goes away. Hey, I got credit for making the promise. But the promise stays. The promise stays with the people to whom you made it. And it will be brought back to you. I believe it was in the writings of Kierkegaard. No, no, it was on The Office, where uh, Michael Scott made this rash claim when he was, he was doing a, you know, go to the third grade classroom and tell them about making paper and selling paper. And he, he told the whole class, I'm going to put you through college. And it was in the papers and everything. They called it Scott's Tots. And then 15 years later, or whatever it was, they all were graduating high school and they invited him to come because they wanted to honor him for the fact that he was going to put them... And of course, he had assumed he would be a millionaire by the time he turned 40, but it hadn't panned out that way. Humans sometimes write checks they can't cash, literally or figuratively. But Paul says, that's not what I was doing here. If it was, I would own up to it. And it's never what God is doing because God is truth itself. We can sometimes make a promise, even to our kids, and it hurts so bad when this happens, and then realize we, because things change, we can't fulfill the promise. We don't have the power to. Uh, you, might, you might tell your child, hey, you just got the last shot you're going to have to get for the next three years. It's on the schedule. Yeah. And then something happens with allergies, and a shot needs to take place, and you go, oh, If it was in in my power, I would keep my promise, but I cannot. Well, God never lacks the power to follow through. You might say when somebody changes the the game on you, listen, you're going to make a liar out of me. Nothing can happen to make a liar out of God. He is, again, truth itself. 
So Paul is saying, doubt me if you must, but know that the Christ we've been preaching cannot and will not fail to do what he has promised. Promises in the scriptures are simply God uncovering a bit of his eternal purpose and showing it to us. This is what from eternity past I have determined to do. I will do it, and now you know. And there are so many. That's why he references all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. We find the the first one early in the book of Genesis and the last one in the very last verse of the Bible. Surely I am coming soon. There are so many promises. Promises of salvation for the sinner who repents. Promises of strength for the timid. Promises of pardon and restoration for the backslider. Promises of peace. Peace of heart and peace of mind for the worrier. And all these promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And there's something, don't, don't gloss over that. They all find their fulfillment and their meaning and their core in Jesus. Paul said to the Romans in Romans 15, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among Gentiles and sing to your name. When he was walking on that road to Emmaus, Jesus said to his two disciples who did not recognize him, let's start at the beginning of the Bible. We're going to start with Moses. We're going to go all the way through all the prophets, and I'm going to show you how it's all about this Jesus, this Messiah. We have to realize that in order to read the scriptures correctly. It's all about Jesus. A friend of mine once went to the big trade show for Christian bookstores and such and found a Bible that, uh, that had blanks in it. And any time there was a promise, you filled in your name, regardless of the context, regardless of who the promise was made to or how it was fulfilled in history, regardless of anything that might be considered decent Bible study method, you'd fill it in and it would make you feel like this book is all about you. Those blanks need to be filled in with Christ. They're fulfilled in Christ, and therefore they are our inheritance in Him. And so he he wants to emphasize that we are partakers of promises that are yes and amen in Jesus. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ, and has anointed us, and who has also put His seal on us, and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. He's anointed us. To be set apart is to be anointed. In the Old Testament, they'd actually pour olive oil on the head. And that meant someone was set apart and gifted for a particular calling. The word Christ, Christos, actually means anointed one. The word Messiah in the Hebrew, anointed one. He is anointed and he in turn anoints us. He's sealed us. A seal was a mark of ownership. It goes all the way back, almost as far back as uh, the record of human history and civilization goes. Ancient kings would use seals to indicate ownership. This past week on Antique Roadshow, my family saw uh, it was James Madison's seal someone happened to have in their family. As recently as that, would use it to indicate identity and ownership over a correspondence. And we have his seal. A seal of ownership, a seal of protection. You read in the book of Revelation about those who were sealed by the Holy Spirit and protected and were forever branded as those who would overcome because of what they had. And then finally, we receive His Spirit as a guarantee. This is a financial term. 
It's a down payment or a deposit. You've got the Holy Spirit as a pledge of faithfulness to complete the rest of the transaction. The Holy Spirit is a surety to us that the full inheritance for us as a son or daughter of God will be ours someday. This, this pledge of the fulfillment of all the promises, quote-unquote, that are yes and amen in Christ. The Spirit's presence is also a reliable kind of foretaste, a sample for us of what we will have in eternity. When we go to the mall, my son always insists we go in the food court door. We go right by the Japanese restaurant because there's always someone there with toothpicks heavy laden with teriyaki chicken. And he'll walk by, he'll get one, and then go to the bathroom and come back out and get another one. He thinks he's sly. You know what? We have a guarantee that not only says, believe that someday you will have peace, you will have shalom, you will have true communion with your fellow man and with your Creator, but says, here's a foretaste of what that will be like. If we are in Christ, that is ours. So all the promises are yes. They're certain. They are amen. They're accomplished. So be it, we might translate amen. Christ is the word and the fulfillment of that word. So why then, at the end of verse 20, does it bring us into the mix? For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why we utter our amen to glory for his God. So so listen, we utter the amen according to the newer translations. In the King James it says, uh, all of them are yes and in him amen for the glory of God of God by us. Now all of a sudden we're mixed in with God's glory? A God for whom every promise is yes and amen? I don't know about you, but I sometimes, even though I had the promise keeper's bracelet, I sometimes break my promises. How do I get in on this? Spurgeon on this text brought up a story of an old organist who was playing, it was just a master, was playing the organ, and it was back when the, the organ had to be powered by somebody working a bellows so that the air would be forced into canisters and, and there would be little gauges that would say how much air was there so that they could play and, and play just something so masterful and so beautiful that the people rose to their feet. And the guy working the bellows looked at the organist and said, hey, we did it. Yeah, you just supplied the, the hot air. These days, by the way, our organ is... Uh, there's a, a hot air receptacle right here, and it just comes from me and goes right into the, the organ. But, but the guy just pumping the air, he, he said, we did it. No, the, the master is the one at the keys. But in the same way, they did do it. We boast in him. We are the objects of his mercy. And so, yes, we are actually central to the fulfillment of the promises made because we are the ones who receive them. We read in the scriptures about a great feast prepared and, and nobody shows up. And so the, the master of the house says, go out into the highways and byways. You get anybody and you bring them in. And it's a beautiful picture of what the kingdom of God is like, that the religious people and the upper crust and all those who think they have it all together are missing out. Well, those who are out and, and not in any way thought of as being the, the cream of the crop are brought in and receive grace because they know they need it. Well, what if nobody came in at all? What if there was a beautiful, wonderful feast there, but no one ate it? There would be no feast. There would just be a waste of food. In the same way, we boast in him because he lets us be part of this transaction. We are the recipients 
of these great promises, which in him are yes and amen. And, you know, Paul knows here that he is not infallible. He recognizes, yeah, in this case, I didn't vacillate. I wasn't all, but I'm, I can mess up. I, I, I can. In fact, he, he frames these things in what he was thinking. I had a mind to visit you. Even though this guy was an apostle and wrote more than half of the books of the New Testament, even though he actually, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, penned words that even today are understood to be the very words of God, even though he went out into the wilderness and received directly his gospel from God through revelation, he doesn't hide behind, well, God told me. He says, listen, I had a mind to do this, and I changed my mind. I had good and godly reasons initially, and I had good and godly reasons to change my mind. But I'm not going to tell you, God told me this, then God told me to change. You hear so much of that today. I think about half the time it's a cop-out, half the time it's an attempt to seem spiritual so that we will look like good Christians. Recognize that as a Christian, even like St. Paul, we ask God for wisdom. We look at the situation in front of us. We pray that we will make good choices that will honor Him. And then we go for it. And sometimes we look and say, oh, the situation's changed. Or we look back and go, that wasn't the wisest thing I could have done. Sometimes there is a little blowing back and forth in our hearts and minds. And when that happens, we need to recognize, like Paul does, that if they start to view him as unreliable and wishy-washy, hedging his bets all the time, they would begin to doubt the gospel. His integrity would be in question. And sometimes this happens with us as well. Sometimes we need, like, like Paul, to defend ourselves against someone's false claims. Hey, that guy's telling you about Jesus, but let me tell you what he did. And, and we might have to say, listen, that's not true. Someone is lying about me because they want to drag the gospel down. Sometimes what they're saying is true. And we simply need to own our sin and confess it. And you know what's beautiful about that? It's an object lesson to say this is what the Christian life is about. I fall down. He picks me up. I fall in the mud and the muck and the mire. He pulls me out and washes me and makes me clean. How does that sound to you? So he then gives the reason, and it's quite simple and straightforward. He gives it to us first negatively and then positively. I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your face. So he starts with the negative. It was to spare you. I didn't want to come and rebuke you and preach strongly against you again. I, my heart couldn't bear it. He's following Jesus' example. Yes, there's lots of sin in this church. We saw it when we looked at 1 Corinthians. And, and he came, like Jesus, came first to seek and save his people and, and said, I come not to judge the world. He gave room for grace and he gave time for grace. He said, listen, I've already rebuked you. I just wanted to let it sit to let the Holy Spirit do his work. Like Christ, yes, Paul is willing ultimately to judge those in Corinth who will continue to reject the gospel and will not repent. Chapter 13 makes that clear. But before judgment comes mercy. This is kind of the opposite of in the Old Testament. When as they wandered for 40 years, God said, listen, yes, I'm punishing you, but I'm also preparing because the sins of the Gentiles in the land are not yet full. And when their sin has reached this level, I will bring you in to punish them. Paul's saying, listen, your sin is still up here. And I'm, I'm praying and trusting that 
It's going to go down. And when I arrive, I won't have to rebuke you. I won't have to preach against you. Together, we can rejoice. The positive is, my desire is to cause you joy, not sorrow, not pain. If you're going to stand, I want you to stand. I don't want you to fall. I want you to stand firm. And I want you to stand, not on turtles, but on God's promise. And so he says to them, stand firm. Stand firm in him. He wants to help them. He doesn't want to knock them down. He wants to help them stand. Now, Paul had been knocked down. They called him Saul. He was persecuting the church. He was on his way to Damascus, and God just was like, boom, knocked him down on his back. But then what happened? God called along Ananias to pick him up, to carry him to his home, to wash his eyes, and the scales fell away, to build him up. And that's what Paul wants to do for them. I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you, for I caused you pain, and if I caused you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all you that my joy would be the joy of you all. He's referencing this missing stern letter that he wrote that we don't have. He said, I thought I could write you a letter instead of visiting and then wait and let it do its job. He wants to bring joy, not sorrow. But if that's the case, why doesn't he just calm down and stop being you know, such a nitpicky apostle? After all, if all of God's promises are yes and amen, why be negative at all? Why not just show up and say, yeah, whatever you're doing, it's cool. Because every yes contains an infinite number of no's. I think this is the, the source behind a lot of cold feet. Guys are like, yeah, I'm so excited to say I do. Yes, yes, yeah, absolutely. The rest of my life with... And then they realize, wait, that's no to her, 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 and every... Oh my goodness! Forsaking all others. Yes, he wants them to be blessed. He wants them to, to receive joy. He wants them to be double blessed. But he cannot bear their false blessing from a false promise that Christ never made, that they could simply go on sinning, that grace may increase. Edwards, in his wonderful resolutions, wrote this, resolved that all men should live for the glory of God. Resolved, second, that whether others do or not, I will. And I think we see two extremes here, neither of which is healthy. You turn on the TV to the religious channel and much of what you see is people saying yes, 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 yes to everything. To sin, to wickedness, to self-centeredness, to, to a, a lifestyle that is all about glorifying me. Yeah, God wants that for you. You be a champ. And on the other side, we see people who want to just say no. They don't want to bring joy but sorrow. Even people who preach the doctrines of grace who will, who will just want to just wreck you because you're a filthy sinner when they can be giving the promises of God, which in Christ are all yes and amen. Paul does not get a kick out of causing pain for his converts or his brothers and sisters in Christ. His own sadness and joy are contingent on their spiritual joy. And so he closes with these words. I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I wrote to you, Out of much affliction and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. 
They accused him of lightness, of making his decisions lightly. He says, I wrote out of much affliction and anguish with a heavy heart. There was nothing light about it. But my goal is not to be right. I didn't want to show up and say, you guys are wrong and this is how you do it. And clean up your act. I get no joy out of that, writes St. Paul. I want to help you to stand and stand firm. Is that how you feel about your brothers and sisters in Christ? You want to help them stay. You don't want to be the one who comes along and knocks them down. You want to be the one who helps them up. This is our example in Christ and in his apostles. And you know, when we do that, when we approach the gospel that way, people are a whole lot more likely to happily receive it. Why is that? Because when there is yes and there is amen, we recognize that God is for us. He is for himself, and therefore he is for us. You know, this is Karl Barth's uh, kind of whole thing. He, he said, in Christ there is a great yes. And that yes overwhelms our feeble little no. We might say, no, I'm running away. No, I, I can't give up that. I can't, I, no, I'm not going to repent and turn to you and fall on my face at the foot of the cross. But when we are encountering the great promises that are in Christ... The power of that yes makes our objections melt away. Where are you standing today? Are you standing on the promises? Are you born again? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ and found that that when He died on the cross, He took your sins on His shoulders so that you could take His righteousness and be clean and pure and stand before God without so much as a spot or blemish? You could be a son and a daughter of the one true God. Where are you standing? If you are not standing on the promises, whether you're standing on turtles or whatever else, it's not going to hold. When life comes in and starts shaking you, those promises will hold. But those other things are sinking, shifting sand, according to the Lord Jesus. And you might even be saying, no, 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 no but you might be hearing that resounding yes and feeling that pull. And and it might be something subtle. You know, Aaron and I, we used to, when we first got married, we lived in a high-rise. Sounds swanky, doesn't it? It wasn't at all. Uh, The garbage chutes kind of like took over the hallway a couple times a week. But, But the cool thing was we could sit on our balcony and look down 28th Street. And 28th Street in Grand Rapids has every single restaurant in the world. And the wind does this weird thing where it's like through the buildings. And you would smell restaurants one at a time. You'd be like, oh, Wendy's. Oh, Mongolian barbecue. Red Lobster. And they would just come in. And and that's nice during the day when it's almost dinner time. But it's not nice at night when your wife's trying to sleep. And you're going, I really need a Mexi-Melt right now. Because I caught a whiff of it. Listen, and all the different urges I got, and all the different jones in for different kind of food while I lay there in bed, I never once had an urge for something that didn't exist. I'd never been like, oh yeah, that's, you know what? That smells good, but I really want some, some trouble gub. What's, what's that? What's that, Zach? What are you talking about? Are you asleep? No, no, trouble gub is this, this imaginary food that doesn't exist. And it tastes kind of, you know, glarky, which is an imaginary kind of taste that I invented. Sort of a purple triangular taste. It doesn't exist. I really want it right now. That's not even possible. If, if you want something, if you crave it, 
If it's, if it's pulling at you, it's because you've tasted a little and you know that it's good. Or maybe you haven't even tasted it, but you've caught a whiff. And God created us in his image to have a relationship with him. And we've caught a whiff of it and we know that it's good. That's why everyone, everywhere, wherever you go, every people has religion. Because they're all reaching out for him. And in Christ, those promises are yes and amen. And if you have gotten a whiff of that, I encourage you to put your faith in Jesus Christ today. And, and we're going to together continue to bring a gospel to the world to a, a group of people out there who are in darkness and need the light, who are standing on shifting sand and everything feels like it's falling apart and they need the solid rock of Jesus. We're going to bring those, those promises to them and we're going to do it in a way to bring them joy, not to bring them sorrow and pain. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for those promises. We're so thankful that you have given us a sure place to stand in a world that always feels like everything is falling this way and that. Everything is on the verge of just crumbling. Lord, we have the solid rock to stand upon. We know that you will always keep your word, that in you every promise is yes and amen, that we can trust you to comfort us and guide us and lead us, and more than anything, to present us wholly before the Lord on the last day. Lord, may we, like Paul, as we go out and interact with other sinners in the world who are, who are just like us in need of grace, may we be of the heart that wants to bring joy, not sorrow, that wants to bless and not curse, that, that wants to show grace and not judgment. And Lord, may we, like Paul, be straightforward and bold in proclaiming the gospel, trusting that you will do the work of drawing your own to yourself. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.